so beautiful out tonight. There is just a gorgeous full moon. Hi there, welcome to Bipolar Recorder. I'm your host, Hunter Keegan. Thanks for joining me. Today is December 7th. That's right, at the time of this recording, we are exactly one week into December, and it's great to be alive. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was almost dead. To add some layers of authenticity to this program, let me level here for a second. On the weekend before Thanksgiving, I almost died. I'm not joking. It was wild. After years of stability and having my bipolar disorder relatively under control, I slipped badly and took what my psychiatrist later described as a, quote, potentially lethal dose of multiple prescription medications. Through a series of almost otherworldly coincidences and sheer luck, I avoided hospitalization, arrest, and or death this time around. It was hardly my first rodeo, but I'm not yet ready to publicly get into too much further detail about all of this. It's something I'm working on through my therapist, some very close friends, and my family. Maybe I never will discuss it publicly. Just know that this bipolar life gets crazy for me too. Okay, fine. Here's some additional detail. No guests today. I'm just going to tell you about my own back life. Let's go. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. I'm not gonna lie, this is super hardcore, and I'm sharing it because I think it's extremely important to talk about these things in a transparent way. As far as content warnings go, I guess this is going to involve a lot of detailed talk about drug addiction and suicidal ideation. For everyone who is sticking around, Let's get started. So a couple of weekends ago, after returning to semi-consciousness from a complete pharmaceutical-grade blackout, I realized that regrettably, after six years and 11 months of sustained abstinence from hard drugs and alcohol, I had crossed a line, and I could no longer consider myself on a path of healthy living or harm reduction. Furthermore, surviving those potentially lethal doses was a massive wake-up call that my major depressive episodes can still become extremely dangerous, even though I may only encounter them once every couple of years. I've always taken a pretty unique approach to how I regulate the substances that I use and how I exercise harm reduction. Really, the number one thing for me as an individual is that I absolutely cannot consume alcohol, and I'm really good about sticking to that these days. Alcohol was a major crutch for me, and it was really messing up my life in my early 20s, and I'm thankful that I'm no longer using it. But over the last year, the harm reduction that I was practicing had gone from no alcohol but occasional weed is okay to no alcohol but weed is fine whenever and mushrooms are also okay sometimes to basically anything that isn't alcohol is fair game. Now, I felt really, really freaked out when this relapse happened. Not necessarily because I easily could have fatally overdosed, but because I thought the relapse had effectively occurred out of the blue. Why had this happened? It seemed so random and so dumb. 
One of the first things I did after somewhat regaining my senses was email my therapist and get in with her for an urgent appointment. Miraculously, and because she is awesome, she was able to carve some time out of her Saturday night to speak with me. I've never had a therapist who offers that type of availability. I am absolutely blessed to have someone like that in my life. When I spoke with her that evening, I started by saying, I've come to the realization today that I have some very real addiction issues that are resurfacing. This wasn't exactly news to her. We commonly discussed my historic addiction to alcohol and other drugs, and lately we'd been talking a lot about my possibly problematic use of marijuana and some other stuff that I'll get into later. I don't remember much about what we discussed during that session on the Saturday night. I think I may have still been under the influence of the narcotic medications I had taken the day previously. But the key takeaway was that as I spoke with my therapist, I realized that the relapse was actually the logical culmination of several months of escalating behavior and was intimately tied to an ongoing depressive episode that had steadily crept up on me and gotten out of control. Here's an abridged version of the general timeline and events that led up to my crisis situation. Explaining the full list of events and how they were significant would be confusing and overly lengthy, and frankly, I'm not comfortable going too deep into it, but here's what I can share. Virtually, the first half of 2022 was going great for me. But back in May, I had to break up with my beloved girlfriend, and I'm not trying to be flippant about this. I was genuinely madly in love with this woman. But an unexpected revelation came about that was so messed up that I couldn't conceivably continue being with her. The breakup was really messy, and my ex began stalking and harassing me in the aftermath. Soon I had to get law enforcement involved, and sadly the woman who I'd been deeply in love with for nearly two years was a cause of distress and turmoil in my life. This was a pretty fucked up way to start the summer. To make matters worse, before the breakup, we had been seriously planning on moving to a new town together. I'd dreamed of relocating from my hometown in Northern Virginia for years, and I had spent a lot of time preparing for the move with her factored into the equation. When our relationship abruptly ended, it also destroyed important plans that I had made for living arrangements. Not only had the most important relationship in my life disintegrated, but the lease on my apartment was rapidly drawing to a close, and I no longer had any idea where I would be living after the end of July. Around at this time, I began experiencing hypomanic episodes about once every couple of weeks. Because I'm on medication, they didn't get too out of hand, but I did notice myself feeling euphoric, having racing thoughts, staying up super late, and exhibiting very goal-directed behavior in a way that was unusual for me. I'm 29 years old. Aside from when I was attending college, I lived my whole life in my hometown, sort of by default. I felt trapped. I knew for sure I didn't want to resign myself to remaining in Northern Virginia, but I wasn't exactly sure where I could move to. My parents still lived right down the road from me, and I decided to put most of my belongings in a rented storage unit and live in my parents' basement until I devised a more permanent living solution. From late July through early September, I was staying at my parents' place on weekdays and then traveling to various locales on weekends, trying to find a desirable place to relocate to. I love my parents, but often we don't get along well, and my mom is particularly triggering to be around. Like me, she lives with mental illness. However, unlike me, she is not in treatment 
And it's awful, but if we're in the same room for more than a couple of minutes, we get into intense screaming matches with each other, and it's really bad for maintaining mental equilibrium. Also, I was using psychedelic mushrooms pretty heavily. I actually mentioned my use of mushrooms at least once in the Mental Health Chill Zone episode of Bipolar Recorder, and possibly on a couple of other episodes from the summer. While in my own experience, psychedelic drugs are fine in moderation, I was starting to do large doses of shrooms nearly every weekend. It was pretty juvenile, to be honest with you. I would basically hide in my parents' basement or backyard and listen to music through headphones while tripping balls. For the most part, the trips went well. I still maintain that psychedelics are rad, but I think that going through the emotional and spiritual intensity of a strong mushroom trip isn't something you should just do on a totally casual basis even if you're neurotypical for that matter. I also started participating in this kind of religious thing called Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. It's organized by an artist named Alex Gray, who has designed album art for the band Tool and also orchestrated elaborate multimedia art installations at festivals like Burning Man. He's a pretty cool dude, and he and his wife host virtual gatherings once a month where people chat and share their artwork with each other. It's sort of cool because Alex often provides his own constructive feedback, and it's interesting to hear what he has to say as an established artist. There's a strong psychedelic drug aspect to Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. It's not like you're required to be a psychonaut or anything to join. All are welcome for a nominal fee, but it's definitely an atmosphere that is supportive of alternative states of consciousness. And because I often benchmark my lifestyle choices against what others around me seem to be doing, this sort of encouraged me to continue pushing my use of psychedelics further. This is not a reflection on Alex Gray or Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, but it's a flaw in the way my own brain works. Around the same time, I moved back into my parents' place and started having these crazy conversations with Alex Gray. I met someone in my professional network who was pretty noteworthy. He piqued my interest because he'd done proper TED Talks and things of that nature. He also knew lots of people in the healthcare field and was a professional keynote speaker. We connected and I learned more about him. His story was actually pretty wild. He was a former Hollywood big shot who'd run into some rough times about 15 years ago, and it fundamentally changed his perspective on things, and now he's sharing that perspective with the world. How cool! Anyway, he told me he'd put me in touch with some really well-known people. But first he explained he'd need a video of me doing some sort of presentation that he could pass along to his network. Obviously, I understood that he wasn't going to just put me in touch with distinguished people without hearing me do any type of public speaking. So, while somewhat hypomanic, I ran with this idea and wrote a 20-page long speech about social stigma that surrounds mental illness. Then I parsed it down to a two-page highlight version and ended up recording a video of myself delivering the speech. Although the final video is only about three minutes long, it was actually a major effort on my part. I conducted a bunch of background research and identified legitimate sources to formulate my talking points. I spent hours memorizing and practicing the speech so I wouldn't have to use note cards or prompts. And I also coordinated a filming location and bought camera equipment. 
It was a lot to handle. Keep in mind, I also have a full-time day job and am a working professional. So it's not like I'm just sitting around all day fucking around. Like I do have a professional life that I attend to and I was doing this additional project on top of my day job and all the other stuff that I do for mental health advocacy, for my music, for my artwork, you know, things like that. Long story short, this guy basically ghosted me, which I was prepared for. I run into people like this all the time, but it still pissed me off. I put on a suit jacket and everything for that video. If you want to check it out, it's on my YouTube channel. I'll link it in the episode description. Seriously though, this guy had put me in a pretty vulnerable spot and I had nothing tangible to show for it. This video was actually the first time I'd really attached my face and likeness to my mental health outreach. Normally, what I do is through podcasts or books or music, things of that nature. You may notice that in older photographs of me on social media, my face is usually obscured. This guy had actually encouraged me to take a big risk with personal and professional consequences, and I had taken that risk with the understanding that he would at least watch my little three-minute video. So, this situation was pretty not cool, but instead of retracting the video and hoping no one had seen it, I decided to run with it and keep my face out there. This constituted a sea change for me. After leaving the video up for a couple of weeks, I realized that by showing my face more, I was humanizing myself, and my outreach was beginning to find a wider audience. I don't give the guy who ghosted me any credit for this. I think this was bound to happen sooner or later. Anyway, if you go to my Twitter page and stuff, now you can see what I actually look like. Be sure to follow me while you're there. By September, I'd decided it was absolutely time to get out of my parents' basement. I couldn't deal with the family dysfunction. My mom and I were at each other's throats constantly, and my mental health was declining even more rapidly than before. After much deliberation, I decided that I would move 200 miles south to a city called Roanoke, Virginia. Located in the gorgeous Blue Ridge Mountains, Roanoke is a cool, laid-back area with refreshing southern charm and a dope industrial vibe. I really like it. I found a fantastic house to rent in a quiet neighborhood just outside of downtown Roanoke, and the next thing I knew, the nightmarish sprawl of the greater Washington, D.C. area was literally in the rearview mirror, and I was headed south to begin the next major chapter in my life. I wasn't sure exactly what that chapter would or should be about, or how it would begin. Please understand that I am not trying to just whine about my life here. I think my life is pretty awesome in most ways, but these are a ton of what professionals call life disruptions. A sudden, intense end to a cherished relationship. Professional stressors when it came to my day job and moonlight projects and excessive drug use, and of course, a major relocation to an entirely new city where I didn't have any friends, family, or other human support systems. As much as I loved being in Roanoke, I would be lying if I said that the social isolation factor wasn't starting to fuck with my head a bit after four or five weeks. I found myself heavily using an easily accessible drug called nitrous, which is an inhalant that creates a very strong dissociative anesthetic effect for about 10 to 15 seconds at a time. Some people call it hippie crack. It's commonly used at dentist's offices for patients who are feeling overly anxious and music festivals for dudes who are trying to get fucked up. It's really relaxing, and I'm not sure I would consider it a hard drug, but it's also probably not good for your brain, and you definitely shouldn't be binging on it most nights of the week. 
I was also starting to use a ton of marijuana and I was spending a shitload of money on both nitrous and weed. By early October, I was recognizing that this was becoming a problem and all of the telltale warning signs of legit addiction were becoming pretty obvious. I still didn't consider myself to have completely deviated from my path of harm reduction at that point because I wasn't experiencing major physical repercussions from my indiscretions. Still, throughout autumn, my therapist and I frequently talked about reducing my use of nitrous and weed, but I found it difficult to let go of at the time. Can you imagine that? Who would have thought... Who would have thought? Then, in mid-October, my ex-girlfriend began calling me. She would call me literally hundreds of times a day using some sort of software that would send the calls through from a different number each time, so it was difficult to block her and screen her calls. She went on to all of my social media accounts and started posting old photographs of us together and started begging me to call her back with the threat of self-harming. This went on for weeks and was extremely stressful for me. I thought that after I moved away, she'd have lost interest, but now she was harassing me more than ever. It was so stressful that I actually had to take time off from work because I was so anxious that I couldn't concentrate on anything. I know that sounds ridiculous if you've never experienced clinical anxiety, but it seriously sucks and can be completely debilitating when it gets really bad. This either coincided with or directly triggered a major depressive episode that was marked by apathy and chronic insomnia. From mid-October through the end of November, I was sleeping two to three hours a night at most. Lots of nights I wouldn't sleep at all. It was completely exhausting and eerily reminiscent of a brutal depressive episode that I had in late 2017. I had already scheduled a bunch of interviews for Bipolar Recorder throughout November, so while all of this was going on, I recorded a ton of new audio with some great guests. Three of those episodes have already been released, and I hope you check them out if you haven't already. Here's a key point. I genuinely did not realize how severe my depression and substance abuse issues were becoming at the time. I knew I wasn't doing great mentally, lots of my friends were starting to express concern, and so were my psychiatrist and therapist, but I had no idea that something so dangerous as a potentially lethal situation could be right around the corner. I was primarily focused on my day job, working on this podcast, and putting some final touches on a new solo album that I'd spent the last year recording. The week before Thanksgiving felt fairly normal to me. I did not know that on that very Friday night, the situation would suddenly escalate and enter lethal territory. I work remotely for my day job, and two of my coworkers were on vacation, so I was covering a pretty heavy workload, as well as recording interviews for the podcast and also sending my album out for final mastering and digital release. I was really busy and focused on handling those concrete tasks, so I wasn't spending much time living in my head, although I was still completely sleep-deprived and dragging myself through each day. On Friday, everything seemed semi-normal. Like I said, I work remotely, so I just logged off around 5pm like I normally do and left my laptop in my home office. The guy who mastered my album for me had mailed me a couple of physical CDs with the final album on them, and I remember being really stoked about that. So it wasn't like I was in a headspace of total gloom and doom. I actually had some positive things going on. But over the last three months or so, I'd had this recurring urge to take an excessive amount of a certain prescription medication. 
I particularly fantasized about combining the medication with a cheap Cabernet and blacking out. I now realize that this may constitute a form of suicidal ideation. I never really brought this up with my therapist before the crisis situation because I thought I was somehow being internally overdramatic and didn't want to freak my therapist out unnecessarily. Without going into too much detail about specifically what happened and what life or death outcomes I was pursuing that night, I think that what I can say is that there is an extremely important reason why I originally stepped away from using hard drugs seven years ago. When I say hard drugs, I'm not talking about weed and psychedelics or even nitrous. I mean things like alcohol, amphetamines, opiates, benzos, etc. Those are drugs that can literally ruin your life, and for people like me with addictive tendencies and who are attracted to high-intensity experiences, all it takes is one really fucking stupid judgment call to send you on an escalating path of poor decision-making with potentially catastrophic outcomes. Why take one pill when you could take five? Why stop at five when you could take 20? Why not see what happens? Well, fuck around and find out. It's a straight-up miracle that this crisis situation did not land me in a hospital, morgue, or jail. This is what I sometimes jokingly call the quote-unquote rock-and-roll-outlaw lifestyle. And that lifestyle is fun for about two hours, and then it gets super not rock-and-roll super quick. Let's bring it back full-circle Pulp Fiction style. After I blacked out and woke up the next day, one of the first things I did was email my therapist. I did not tell her the full scope of what had happened in the email. I just vaguely said that I'd fucked something up and needed to urgently speak with her and possibly go to a hospital, which I realize actually sounds really alarming and is probably why she got back to me so quickly. In this case, I'm extremely fortunate that my therapist is responsive, comfortable with navigating intense mental health situations, and has a vested interest in my genuine well-being. Not many therapists are truly like this. She was able to speak with me for an hour later that evening, and together we developed a sort of impromptu recovery plan to help me stay safe as I stabilized. I've spoken on the show before about the importance of having emergency crisis plans in place, and situations like this are exactly why. I should have already developed this plan as soon as I moved to Roanoke, but it was one of those things that I never seemed to get around to. Part of the plan I agreed on with my therapist was that I'd come back to Northern Virginia for a few days and stay with my family so I wouldn't be totally alone. Because it was the week of Thanksgiving, I'd already scheduled a time off from work, so this actually was pretty easy to coordinate. I drove back to Northern Virginia and posted up at my parents' place for a few days. I'm also lucky that I had a previously scheduled appointment with my psychiatrist on the Tuesday following the crisis situation. I wasn't sure how much I wanted to share with my psychiatrist. I kind of inherently distrust medical doctors, but I also recognize that I take that to the extent that it becomes counterproductive. So after a lot of soul-searching, I actually decided to be relatively transparent with him. I told him that I had abused a bunch of the meds he prescribed to me. He was extremely concerned after I told him the dosages I had taken, and he was actually the first professional to directly apply the term crisis situation to my state of affairs. He also described the amount of medication I had taken as being potentially lethal. Also, he brought up some stuff that I hadn't considered, such as the fact that the large doses of medication that I would taken had actually put me at risk for seizures even after the noticeable psychotropic effects left my system. 
He also reminded me that marijuana use has been linked with increased rates of depression and anxiety in longitudinal studies, and that this is the reason he has always recommended not using THC products. He said that while the initial effects of marijuana can feel relaxing and therapeutic in the initial hours following consumption, overall the risk-reward trade-off isn't worth it for most people with bipolar. Then he suggested inpatient hospitalization, which if you know anything about this show, I am totally not down with. In my email to my therapist, I had mentioned possibly needing to go to a hospital, but that was a couple of days before I met with my psychiatrist, and at that point, I was no longer at imminent risk of harm and saw no reason to voluntarily go to a hospital and potentially end up being kept there for observation against my will. I carefully reassured my psychiatrist that inpatient hospitalization was not necessary and succinctly outlined the recovery plan I'd developed with my therapist, calmly emphasizing that I was no longer in imminent danger and some other magical wordsmith shit that convinced him I wasn't going to do something really stupid again. He made some adjustments to my cocktail of medications including explaining that he could no longer ethically prescribe certain meds to me, which I understood given the circumstances. He also asked me to remain in close contact with my therapist and to schedule a follow-up appointment with him for the following week instead of a month out like we normally do. He asked me to notify him immediately if there were any issues with getting the new medications filled or if I experienced unexpected side effects from the new medication. The last couple of weeks of November were incredibly rough. I had never felt so depressed since 2017, but something kind of incredible happened, which is that I had an intense spiritual experience while meditating the day after Thanksgiving that felt very much like a religious awakening, and ever since then, I've felt a tremendous weight lifted from my shoulders. It was pretty trippy and was accompanied by an interesting hallucination that felt as if something was gently pushing down on me in a comforting way. Possibly I encountered what Christians call Jesus, but the cynic in me thinks that it was probably the result of sleep deprivation, stress, and possibly a form of sleep paralysis. I still had awful insomnia up until a few days ago, just a couple of days before the recording, really. But I am really happy to say that the medication adjustment appears to be working properly, and the tools and self-exploration I have been developing through therapy are really helping me process things as well. Overall, I currently feel very at peace with everything that happened, although I am still treating the situation very seriously. I've been back on the recovery train for about three weeks now, I'm not doing the stone sober thing, I still occasionally use marijuana, just not in excessive amounts, and I plan to continue dialing that back and eventually completely avoiding it, just to get that clear-headed perspective on things. One of the things my therapist asked me to do was to take stock of what my current boundaries with substances and harm reduction are, and after much deliberation, I decided that the only things I occasionally still want to keep in the mix at this stage in my life are weed and LSD. <laughs> yeah, why LSD, you may be wondering. Well, because compared to other psychedelics in my experience, LSD is relatively clear-headed, clean-feeling, and lucid. It's also rare to come by these days, and every five years or so, I feel like revisiting it for spiritual purposes. It's just one of those things that I could see myself taking again if I wanted to get super trippy. But again, with the caveat being that it's not like the sort of thing that I would do every weekend or even every couple of years. That 
is a glimpse behind the bipolar recorder curtain. Ironically, over the last six months, numerous people have started referring to me as some kind of role model or enduring success story. But what I've always said and still stand by is that there will always be bipolar trials and tribulations, and I will continue sharing them with others as I personally navigate them. If that resonates with people, that's phenomenal, but I'm not trying to be any type of role model, and I'm never trying to tell other people how to live their lives. I just want to be clear about that. So lately, I've kind of been thinking to myself, do I have a mental health role model? I mentioned before on the show that when I was a teenager, my heroes were guys like Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley, both of whom lost their lives as the direct result of drug abuse and mental illness. So who is my mental health role model now? I've been trying to narrow it down and project my current values onto somebody else. I brainstormed a bit and couldn't determine a true mental health role model, so I came up with the following honorable mentions that are still pretty questionable. The first is Carrie Fisher. Rest in peace. I can't stand Star Wars anymore. It has completely oversaturated Western culture. But she's kind of the OG high-profile bipolar activist. I'm also jealous of the crafty titles of her memoirs. She titled her books stuff like Wishful Drinking and Delusions of Grandma, and I think that shit is perfect and hilarious and on point. We also have a weirdly similar style of writing and structuring stories, which I think is kind of cool. The second was a much more obscure individual named Diane Arbus. Rest in peace as well. Diane Arbus is somewhat of an obscure photographer, an artist who was active in the 1960s. I saw an exhibition of her work at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. several years ago and read about her life. I found out that she actually lived with bipolar disorder, and I was deeply moved by her photography, which primarily highlighted individuals who were social outcasts in the 1960s, and even now. So she would take photos of people like quote-unquote circus freaks, or gay people, or people with disabilities, and so forth. Her important work shed light on marginalized communities and earned a degree of notoriety after being featured in popular magazines. I have a quote from her here, actually, that I think is really, really interesting. Um, She once wrote a letter to a friend, and she was describing how she felt She wrote, I get filled with energy and joy, and I begin lots of things or think about what I want to do and get all breathless with excitement, and then quite suddenly, either through tiredness or a disappointment or something more mysterious, the energy vanishes, leaving me harassed, swamped, distraught, frightened by the very things I thought I was so eager for. Diane Arbus died by suicide when she was 46 years old. Are these two individuals better role models than Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley? Maybe. They still died tragically, but they lived longer at least, right? So I guess I followed in Carrie Fisher's footsteps by writing a memoir about my own experiences with bipolar disorder and drug addiction, despite the fact that I'm not a household name or pop culture icon. Every little bit helps. I actually wasn't very familiar with her work until after my own book was published, so it was really interesting to me that there were parallels between our experiences, despite her being rich and famous. As for Diane Arbus, I actually wrote a song directly inspired by her photography a couple years ago. It's called Cradle, and I included it on my 2021 album with my band Last Known Images. It's a song about social isolation and desperately trying to establish meaningful human contact. 
I actually incorporate the intro to Cradle in the segue to the end of each installment of this podcast. If you're curious, check out the full track on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you use. I'll include the link in the episode description. These bipolar heroes and anti-heroes are evidence that humans can be inspired by each other. But that doesn't necessarily mean they need to be carbon copied and artificially recreated. They're sort of like general points of reference for me. To me, Cobain, Staley, Fisher, Arbus all reflect aspects of my creative personality type and endured highly relatable experiences that also shaped their work. That's my current takeaway. When I was younger, I was drawn to them not just by the art they created, but because of their infamy and rock and roll outlaw lifestyles. Now that I'm almost in my 30s, I think I'm getting better at separating the negative elements of those people from the ones that inspire me in a positive way. You don't have to do heroin to write awesome music. You don't have to slit your wrists to leave a legacy. It would have been cool if they lived longer and had the chance to share more of their projects with the world. Where are we going and where have we been? A question for the ages. As grains of sand pass through the cosmic hourglass, the meaning we ascribe to significant life events evolves. You may not look at an event the same way years later as you did on the day it happened. But trauma linked to mental health crises are not only something that can fuck with you. It can also become the impetus for personal growth. Processing trauma and working through trauma is very challenging and uncomfortable. It requires you to put yourself in a position of vulnerability, open yourself to what's messing with your head, and actively reorient your patterns of thought and the messages they're sending to you on an emotional level. Exploring traumatic events from my life and ascertaining the ultimate takeaways from them, learning how they have impacted me over the years, and how they continue to subconsciously influence my mind, has been one of the most important learning experiences of my adult life. It has helped me become more self-actualized, given me important insights about myself, and shown me that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, I can come out the other side not only stronger as a person, but with new resources at my disposal to maintain recovery and stability. With that said, there are not always silver linings to traumatic events. I really am not one of those people who thinks everything in life is part of God's plan. Confronting traumatic memories can be very complicated and even feel counterproductive at times. And that's why when it comes to especially significant traumatic events that directly impact your mental, spiritual, physical well-being, I strongly encourage people to get in with a good therapist if possible. I've been seeing my current therapist for the last four years, and over the last couple of weeks, she has been extremely helpful, even more so than she normally is. I am really, really fortunate to have this specific therapist in my life right now. Not just someone like her, but specifically her. That was somewhat of an important revelation I had after working through the crisis scenario. One of the things my therapist asked me to do at the end of our most recent session was to develop a new process by which I could actively identify situations that cause me to feel vulnerable. So for example, I've discovered that a major depressive episode makes me very, very subjectively vulnerable to extreme sleep disruptions, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, and impulsive judgment calls. Through working with my therapist and using tools related to internal family systems therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and general talk therapy, I've concluded that each of these main facets of my own depressive episodes are components of maladaptive coping strategies that I have developed since childhood. 
they are double-edged swords that may have helped me in the past to compartmentalize and deal with traumatic events, social anxiety, and other unpleasant things, but overall they are not sustainable or productive. They can literally kill you. This doesn't mean I hate myself or anything. It means that these are really important factors of my life experience that I always need to recognize and pay careful attention to when they emerge. Even if it's just a low-key background thought like, hey, I should drive to the liquor store today. That's something that I need to remain cognizant of even if I don't immediately really think I'm going to follow through with that plan or behavior. This situation has truly been a major wake-up call for me, and it's unfortunate that it resulted from taking things too far and crossing the line. I had been doing really well for years and sort of forgot that, oh, yeah, there's a really, really important and deep-seated reason why I stopped fucking around with the hard stuff all those years ago. When my therapist asked me to identify when I may be feeling vulnerable and thoughts or moods may start becoming overwhelming, I realized after the session that I first needed to define vulnerability. This wasn't really what she had asked me to do, but I felt like it was important, so I ran with the idea, and this is the definition I came up with late one night. Vulnerability means feeling emotionally sensitive and open to all thoughts and feelings, even if they are uncomfortable. Being in a state of vulnerability sometimes feels like nervousness, a fluttering in your stomach, a skip in your heartbeat, but it is really an act of self-compassion. It allows you to explore yourself in new ways that you may not have thought of before. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable can seem difficult, but really it's our most natural state to be in. As humans, we learn to create walls around ourselves and within ourselves. Experiencing vulnerability is the natural, effortless act of removing those walls and allowing yourself to learn from what lies beyond them. installment. Did you like my definition of vulnerability, or did that just sound like some hippie bullshit to you? Sometimes I can't tell anymore, so be sure to hit me up on Twitter at HHKeegan or at Bipolar Recorder to let me know. Please listen closely to the brief statement that follows. During this installment, I mentioned a few of my major creative projects. One of them was my solo album. The album was officially released on the same week that I relapsed, and people are vibing with it. It's titled Midnight Dazzle of the Fireflies, because I thought that sounded flamboyantly awesome. My album with last known images that features a song inspired by Diane Arbus is called Isolation, and the song itself is called Cradle. All of my music is officially out on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, etc. Just search for Hunter Keegan or Last Known Images. Check it out if you'd like. Additionally, in 2020, I wrote a memoir called My Brain is Trying to Kill Me. That's another major project of mine. It can be found on Amazon in Kindle and paperback formats. And then I have a short story called Alice Head Creeps floating around out there, too. All of this is included in the episode description for those who are inclined to check that stuff out. That's enough administrative info for now. I really hope you all got something out of this installment. It's been a really long time since I've had a major bipolar event, and I'm still navigating the fallout of this one. 
I just wanted to say that I am super grateful for my close friends who have been supporting me through this time, my dysfunctional parents who periodically let me crash at their house when things go wrong, and my therapist and psychiatrist who really stepped up to the plate and instead of panicking and trying to force me into a psych hospital, carefully, respectfully, and non-judgmentally listened when I explained the situation to them. I also wanted to advise that lots of people contact me with stories of their own and messages of support, which is awesome and humbling, and I love to hear it. I do read and appreciate everything I receive regarding this project. Keep sending it. I plan to be back with another installment of Bipolar Recorder soon. There's about 10 hours of audio that I recorded in November that I still haven't gotten around to editing just yet. Keep an eye out for that over the coming weeks. Okay, so I believe that this has been enough of me talking for this installment. Thanks for listening to my voice. Be sure to tell your friends about Bipolar Recorder or visit BipolarRecorder.com to support us. Or check out my various creative projects. Posting about this show or any of the projects that I do on social media is actually extremely helpful and it's totally free. Spreading the word and supporting Bipolar Recorder helps keep the podcast running, fosters social progress, which sounds insane, but it really is, which has been blowing my mind. It's like we actually have these messages resonating with people now, and they are making a difference. The stories that we share together on this show really do unite people and educate people and instigate social change, and that's incredible. It also shows people that you're super cool. For real. My name is Hunter Keegan. This was installment 29 of Bipolar Recorder. Thanks so much for listening and have a safe, safe, safe day, evening, or night wherever you are. Peace. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.